0: People in Sweden will tell you that they can't tell when a Norwegian is angry. That's because the way they talk makes them sound like they're always happy.
1: They're very positive, singing. You cannot be mistaken. If someone sounds almost ridiculously positive, it's a Norwegian.
0: While their Scandinavian neighbors tend to think that the Swedes can be a little standoffish.
1: Probably Norwegians
2: and Danes are more likely to thrust a beer in in the guest's hand and invite them in for dinner, where the Swedes just want to kind of take a look and see what is this all about.
0: Coming up, learn how the Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes view one another. Not long ago, many African-American travelers had to rely on a special guidebook when segregation made it hard to find a welcome place to stay.
3: These were just regular houses, and there was no phone numbers. You would just drive up, knock on the door, and say, I see that you're listed in the Green Book. A lot of times, the uh, people wouldn't even charge. Learn the history of the Green Book and hear about the rivalries between
0: Scandinavian cousins in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's easy to take the comforts of modern travel for granted. But not so many years ago, travel for business or pleasure wasn't always so easy, especially for African Americans. It could be strewn with daily obstacles and danger. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Calvin Alexander Ramsey shares the story of a special guidebook that circulated among African American communities in the mid-20th century. We'll find out how black businessmen and families relied on the Green Book to find a welcome and a safe welcome on the road during the days of segregation and Jim Crow laws. Let's open the hour with a look at the mostly gentle rivalries and the ribbing that help to underscore the differences between the Scandinavian countries. From the outside, we often lump Norway, Sweden, and Denmark all together as Scandinavia. It's because of their common Viking history and their similar languages. But as we're about to find out, no one spots our fault so easily as our closest neighbors and cousins. We've invited Osa Danielson from Sweden, Paul Johansson from Norway, and Jena Clausen from Denmark for a little Scandinavian smackdown. Jena, Osa, Paul, thanks for being here. Tusen tak. Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Tacks mycket.
0: Oh, I love that. I love it. Can I just hear each of you say your names with the proper uh, Let me hear you in Scandinavian say your name and where you're from, please.
1: Um,
2: my name is Jena Clausen. Jeg kommer fra I'm from Denmark. Um from Denmark, Nye
1: Nørrebro. Osa Åsa Danielsson, from Stockholm, in Sweden.
4: Paul Johansson from Oslo, in Norway. Okay, now, Åsa, when we think
0: of the word Scandinavia, and we think of the word Nordic Europe, what is the difference?
1: It's a geographical difference, because the Scandinavian countries are the countries that have to do with the Scandinavian peninsula and the Scandinavian mountain chain, mm-hmm. which goes between... Norway and Sweden, and the last little bump is Denmark before it goes into the so continent. So those are the
0: three countries that make Those are the three countries, so the is, only three. what is Nordic Europe then?
1: Nordic Europe includes also Finland, which used to be part of Sweden for many, many centuries, and also Iceland, and uh, sometimes we include the Faroe Islands.
0: Iceland is related linguistically and culturally more closely, but Finland is quite a different story, isn't it?
1: Exactly. Finland is a country that has a language which is not at all related to the other Scandinavian countries, but it shares a history with Sweden. And we share a lot of common traits. Uh, in fact, the
0: second of. language in Finland officially is Swedish. Exactly, where well, yeah.
1: they have a Swedish-speaking minority, a very powerful minority. So it's actually it's the country with the strongest minority laws in the world. So of that.
0: Helsinki would be the Finnish word. Is there a Swedish word for Helsinki?
1: Helsingfors.
0: Helsingfors mm. and you say that with a good Swedish accent I suppose it sounds just <laughs> for 10% of the people in Finland that would be But the it way would you be it.
1: if I would say it in the Finnish accent of Swedish it would be Helsingfors Helsingfors,
0: Helsingfors. okay Helsingfors. now Paul we've talked about the difference between Finnish and the Scandinavian languages how are the languages of Denmark Norway and Sweden distinct and and how different are they
4: Well you could say that Danish and Norwegian when you read it it's very similar. But when it's spoken, mm-hmm. it's quite different. The Danes, we used to say that uh, they speak with a hot potato in their throat. It's like as if they are uh, swallowing the, the words when they're uh, speaking. So, Jena, you're a Dane. Can you show me what Paul is talking about <laughs> the Norwegian?
2: Absolutely. I, I think probably the key phrase is a very famous dessert in Denmark, which is called rødgrød med fløde. <laughs> and uh, supposedly during the war, they used rødgrød med to kind of figure out who was a German spy. If you were able to pronounce that correctly, then you were not a German spy, and vice versa.
0: And now give it another.
2: Rollgrömelflö.
0: Get that uh, hot potato uh, out of your uh, mouth. That's
2: one of those things, yes. In
0: Norwegian, how would you say that without the hot potato?
4: Uh,
0: med I see. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically the same it words. But now, can you read a Danish newspaper if you speak Norwegian? Oh, yeah, no problem no, problem no problem. And if you picked up a newspaper from Stockholm, would it be more different than a newspaper from Denmark?
4: It would be more different. Uh, there are more words that differ from Swedish to Norwegian. Could you basically understand a, a Swedish newspaper, no problem? Yes, I can. The interesting thing is that uh, Norwegians, we tend to understand the Swedes better than the Swedes understand us. Linguistically. Yeah. And this is because my generation especially, when we were kids, we watched a lot of Swedish uh, television. Okay. So we kind of learned uh, the Swedish uh, language that way. But, and however, in Sweden, the influence by Norway was not that big. Now, that would make sense
0: because Sweden really is the dominant media power and the dominant population by exactly, numbers. Exactly, exactly. Osa, when you listen to another Scandinavian, what's a telltale sign just by the language that you can go, oh, that must be a Norwegian? Is there a sort of a.
1: You hear it immediately by the very positive singing. You cannot be mistaken. If someone sounds almost ridiculously positive, it's a Norwegian. And we used to uh, make a little bit fun of the Norwegians with the the Danes. we say, you cannot take a Norwegian who is angry seriously. You just can't because it just sounds so happy and cute all
0: the time. <laughs> so give me in your Swedish uh, caricature a Norwegian talking happy.
1: <laughs> okay. Ja, men... <laughs> uh, det er mye at no, det er sounds a det bit like hader. we're singing, right? Yeah.
0: You know, it's funny you do that because right now I've got this very strange sensation that I'm in the home of my Norwegian relatives. Mm. <laughs> that's how they talk. It's exactly. like, and I remember my dad watched my relatives talking to their children when they were being scolded. Mm-hmm. And my dad just shook his head and goes, that's no way to discipline a child. It sounds like they're complimenting yes. him, you. Know? <laughs> but it's just that beautiful sing-songiness. It's a Scandinavian SmackDown today on Travel with Rick Steves. His guides from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark share some of the things that set the Scandinavian countries apart from each other. Our guests are Paul Johansson from Oslo, Osa Danielsen from Stockholm, and Jena Clausen from Denmark. Now, Paul from Norway, Norway and Denmark have a kind of a, a special relationship. From a, a history point of view, mm. and Norway having to establish itself as apart from Denmark, can you give us a little background on that please
4: well uh, norway they were in um, in a union with Denmark for uh, four hundred years, so of course they've had a pretty big influence on our culture. And um, our language comes from the Danish uh, language. Before the Danes came, we spoke the Old Norse language.
0: So for 400 years, could you say that the elites of Norway who were working with the Danish overlords would Mm -hmm. speak a language that sounded more comfortable to the Danish
4: ear? They would, exactly.
2: Maybe I can jump in also and and just say that basically, and this is Jene Clausen for Denmark, that the Danes imposed Danish on the Norwegians. And the Norwegian language, they call it Bookmol, which is book language, which basically means that anybody in power in Norway had to speak Danish, but they spoke it with their own Norwegian intonation. And it's just recently, in this century after Norway gained their independence, that they actually took some of the remnants from their own language, from the old dialects, and composed a new Norwegian language called Nynorsk. Yeah.
4: Yes, we did that back in um, in the nineteenth century as a sort of a part of uh, finding back to our roots. To say we're not part of Denmark anymore, and you went back to your
0: more the um, the troublemakers in the hills language. Yeah, instead we did. of the people in the big city. <laughs> exactly. Now, Jena, from Denmark, how can you identify a family name between like Norwegian and Danish and Swedish?
2: So traditionally, before people moved into the cities, you didn't need a last name. You just needed your name, and then they said, "Son of whoever it was, son of Sven, son of Hans, son of Ole," and then one daughter dotter, and mm. uh, the only country that still does that is actually Iceland.
0: So Iceland has the daughter. Arna they have daughter.
2: the daughter. They even had a president uh, who was her last name was Finnbogadottir. But in Scandinavia, it wasn't necessary, again, when you lived in an agrarian society, to have a last name. So, again, they had the son, son. And in modern Danish and Norwegian, in general, the last name is S-E-N. And in in Swedish or in the Swedish language, it would be S-O-N. So also, whenever you see an S-O-N, you figure, oh, that's probably a Swede. And whenever you see an S-E-N in the name, like my name, Clausen, then you figure it's a Dane or it's a Norwegian.
0: So if I go to a cemetery in Stockholm, most of the tombstones will have S-O-N on the end of the name.
1: Double S. S-O-N. Yeah. yeah, like my name, two S. D- and then we have another thing in Sweden... When uh, we went from having these uh, I am the son of or I am the daughter of and everyone had to change their last name, a lot of people took the chance to create a new last name. So the model for doing that was actually taking two words that came from nature and putting them together like uh, Lindberg. Lind means linden tree uh-huh. Barry means mountain Lindberry. So
0: somebody Lindberg. would make, They would go to the city Where I need to be more than uh, Jakob Or Johan yeah. And you would say I need to make up a last name I, I could be uh, Johan's son But I think I'll be Lindenberry
1: Yeah Any two words that has to do with nature Put them together Put them And you together. have a Swedish last name
0: Jena, from Denmark, there's a concept in Denmark that I just love, uh, you know, hyggly, that coziness, that conviviality, that Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. intimacy. Is that unique to Denmark, would you say?
2: I think it is unique to Denmark in many ways. It probably originates there, but it's that sense of being content or contentedness. It usually includes, it's very hard to hyggly by yourself. You know, you can't really be hyggly by yourself. It usually involves other people, And not just other people, but food and drink, and sometimes lots of it.
0: So this is eating, drinking together, enjoying uh, the magic evening hours. The magic
2: uh, evening with a lit candle or candles.
0: And when I go into a small town, I see lit candles behind the windows, and I see people having a convivial, cozy time together.
2: Yes. And it's so much more than just cozy. It's this sense of being content and being What is the Danish word again? We say hugli,
0: Hugelig. Åsa from Sweden and Paul from Norway. Is that a, a distinction about Denmark or did they just grab the word first? Are they better at hugli?
4: Oh, well, they, they certainly use the word a lot more. <laughs> 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 so maybe that's, that does mean that they are better at it. But uh, we actually have a, a word uh, that we use in Norway as well. And what is that? That is uh, koselig. Koselig? Yeah. Or kose seg. Okay. Which means to have it cozy. To have it cozy? Yeah.
1: And yeah. osa in Sweden. Yeah, Mysigt in Sweden. Mysa, okay. so to cozy yourself. All right. So we have three versions.
0: But the Danes use that word a lot, hoogly. Yeah. And it's a nice thing when you're traveling in Denmark, even in the big city, you notice this hoogliness. We'll continue with your calls for Jena, Paul, and osa in just a minute at 877 333 7425 as we look at the cozy relationship between the Scandinavian countries as well as their differences. Later in the hour, we'll explore a facet of American travel history as we hear about an important role a handy guidebook known as the Green Book played for African-American travelers back in the 1930s all the way until the 1960s. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It's a fun exercise in compare and contrast right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we look at the common threads and the distinctions between the Scandinavian countries. Representing Denmark is Jena Clausen. Our Swedish ambassador is Osa Danielson, And from Norway, Paul Johansson is our guest. Michael joins us on the phone right now at 877-333-RICK from Denver, Colorado. Hi, Michael.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for our guests?
5: Yes, I, I'm half Swedish, and I've traveled a lot in uh, Sweden, and I also have very good friends in uh, in Norway. So it's sort of a comparison between the two. My wife and I were doing genealogy research in Sweden, and we were looking for uh, living relatives. My grandmother came from Sweden to the United States, and we had lost uh, contact with the relatives in Sweden. When we found the relatives, my cousin that we met was very warm and outgoing. And he took us over to one of the other relatives' house. And when we got there, I don't want to say they were cold, but they were extremely reserved. Uh, We had kind of a nervous half hour or so trying to meet these other Swedish relatives. In Norway, on the other hand, our Norwegian friends are, are very friendly. And we've traveled extensively in Norway all the way. From Kristiansand down in the south to uh, Trondheim in the north.
0: So, your experience was the Swedes were not as warm as the Norwegians. And I think to get our take on our guests, I'm first going to ask our Danish friend, Jena. (laughs) 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 From a Danish perspective, Michael in Colorado, from the Great Rockies perspective, found the Swedes cold and the Norwegians warm. What's the, I know it's dangerous to make sweeping generalizations. It
2: is dangerous, but I, I think that's one of the. Generalizations that you can probably make. I don't think it's because the Swedes are unfriendly; they just want to kind of see who is this dude from Denver, and they you want know. to get
0: the job done. Whereas the Norwegians are going to talk like a kindergarten exactly. teacher. Exactly, I, I
2: How think are you doing? I Everything think probably nice Norwegians and Danes are more likely to to thrust a beer in the guest's hand and and invite them in for dinner, where the Swedes just want to kind of. Take a look and see what is this all about.
0: And I remember when the Olympics were in Lillehammer, and it was like three months before the Olympics, and they still weren't finished, and everybody was thinking, when are they going to let the Swedes come in and get this organized? <laughs> so there is that Swedish, you know, industrialness. Also, what is your take on this? Do you have a defense?
1: I do. Sweden is a big country. It's the biggest country in Scandinavia, and we're also the most populous country. We have enormous differences, whether you're talking about a Swede from the north... And a Swede from the south, or from the east, or from the west. If you talk about the Swede from the west coast, from Gothenburg, they're so happy and friendly and inviting. If like you talk about shipwrecked
0: a, Norwegians,
6: okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but then then if you talk about the Swede in the north, they're famous for. They don't even use the word "ja," which means yes. They use this sound. <sighs> <laughs> that means yes for the northern Swedes. Okay. So you their, they use very few words and can seem quite reserved. So very, and
0: very straight, practical.
1: Yes. And then people in the, yeah, they're different from all parts. And the Stockholmers in Sweden are famous for being quite reserved. All of the other Swedes are making jokes about the, the, the Stockholmers being as being from, reserved well, or, or Mike was
5: from a very, very small town in far western Sweden called Spores near Arvika and northwest of uh, Karlstad. But I have a more difficult question for you. My Norwegian friend has sort of an affectation where he will, when he talks in English, of course, he will, will pause and have sort of an inhale, where he inhales with his mouth open and it makes kind of a rushing sound. I read the book Culture Shock, Sweden, about Sweden, and it mentioned the same thing. Do you have comments on
0: that? Are you talking about a Norwegian or a Swede? Yeah,
5: I'm talking about the Norwegian. Yeah, my Paul, very, what very is very with this?
0: Because my relatives all do this. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is yeah. it like this? <gasps> yeah, exactly.
1: <gasps> oh, that's a, we do that in Sweden, too.
4: <sighs> it's sort of like an acknowledgement, like a, a very vague acknowledgement Oh.
7: <laughs> no, <laughs> like I would this. say <gasps> it
1: actually showing that you're listening. Yeah. So if I'm looking at a person, just looking at that person is not enough. You have to acknowledge that you're following them. <gasps> oh. <gasps> oh. <gasps> oh.
0: I'm breathless, oh. listening to every word. <gasps> yeah.
1: Exactly. So to that's, be silent would be really, slightly rude.
0: That's like, I'm with you. And that's exactly. exactly I get in Norway. And, hey, Michael, you put your finger on something there.
1: Well, at first we thought it was just a,
5: a personal kind of thing until I read this book on Sweden where it said
0: that
5: the Swedes do it uh, somewhat also Uh, we hear you Uh, we're
0: we're here, Michael thanks for your call Michael Okay. okay thank you take care bye now thank you bye this is Travel with Rick Steves we're joined by Jena Osa and Paul from Denmark Sweden and Norway we're talking about the differences in Scandinavia and Frank's calling in from Newport Ritchie in Florida Frank thanks for your call
5: Hi, Rick. It's uh, great to talk to you and your uh, Scandinavian uh, guides. Yeah. I used to uh, live in uh, Sweden for a while, and one of the things that I found was that uh, I think even the the Swedes consider that they are a bit more reserved and much less uh, outgoing than the Norwegians and the Danes. And I just wondered what your uh, panel thought of that.
4: I can give a comment on um, behalf of the Norwegians because Norwegians as well they have a reputation for being a bit uh, shy and and reserved but I always tell my the tour members I bring to Scandinavia that although the Norwegians might seem a bit shy engage them mm-hmm. because they are very curious and uh, Norwegians also they like Americans they're very interested in American culture and mm-hmm. and we've been under a lot of influence since after the second world war by by the US so they're very curious to talking to to Americans, and they're also very proud of talking about their country.
2: Maybe I can also jump in with a comment about if we say that the Norwegians are shy and Swedes might at times be reserved, many people perceive the Danes as being gregarious. And, uh, you know, maybe trying to be um, a little bit better than Norwegians and the Swedes, and a few years ago there was a survey in Scandinavia about who liked each other the most. And supposedly uh, the Swedes like the Danes the most, the Norwegians like the Danes the most, the Finns like the Danes the most, the Icelanders like the Danes the most, and the Danes like the Danes the most. <laughs>
7: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so the Danes are just so darn likable. <laughs> there you go, Frank. Thanks for your call.
5: Well, yeah, it's great. Of course, you know, the Danes are the ones that celebrate our 4th of July, too.
7: That's yeah,
2: they do a- They do celebrate the 4th of July. They do it in the Rabel Hills in, in Jutland. And they usually have a high-profile speaker come from America. It could be uh, once we had Janet Reno, who was of Danish descent, and we usually have, you know, other key figures along with a Danish prime minister or ex-prime minister show up. They sing uh, American songs, and they sing Danish songs, and they have a fantastic time.
0: Across the board, a lot of Scandinavians emigrated. Life was tough up there in the 1800s and uh, went to the promised land, the new land, America, and found their opportunity taksimika, Frank, for calling in. Tak, tak, tak. Tak, tak, tak. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> tuck, tuck, tuck. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Scandinavia with Paul, Osa, and Jena. And we are talking a little bit about jokes between Scandinavians to illustrate the differences. Paul, I know the Norwegians wouldn't be mean-spirited because you're so darn friendly, but are there some fun little jokes that you make about the Danes and the Swedes that
4: illustrate differences that you see between the cultures? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the Norwegians, they don't do many jokes about the Danes for some reason. But we really like to make jokes about the Swedes. The big brother. The big brother or the sweet brother, as we call uh, the Swede. You actually say the Swede brother. Yes, we do. Sweet sweet brother, sweet sister, as they are so uh, nice and uh, politically correct, trying to do everything uh, (laughs) after the the rules. So, Uh, what What is the joke? I'll take a joke, a Swedish joke. And then Åsa will get her chance. Yeah. For sure. I think you heard it before, Rick. So how many Swedes uh, does it take to put in a light bulb? Oh, I can imagine what the answer is. How many? Well, you need at least five. (laughs) You need one to um, hold the bulb and four to go around with a chair.
0: Those brilliant, hardworking Swedes. (laughs) Okay,
4: Åsa, your chance.
6: Well,
1: the thing is, we have the same kind of jokes but we call them Norri historier. What does jokes that mean? about Norwegians. Norwegian so we have the same exact joke. How many Norwegians does it take to do life on? But okay, I'll give you another one. Why does a Norwegian always have a sandpaper with him when he goes out in the desert?
0: I have no idea.
1: Because they they're afraid to go there without a map. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Touche. That's pretty good. Jaina, would you like to jump in with any joke, making fun you of you? You know,
1: your... it's funny. We don't really
2: seem to make too many jokes about the other Scandinavian countries. I think they're all the jokes are all interchangeable. It, yeah, it just true, kind it? of uh, depends on... It's sort of
0: a family. It a, is a family. A family. It, it is a back it.
2: family. But <laughs> I think the bottom line is that the Scandinavians really like each other, and uh, that's probably why we can tell these jokes without anybody going to war. Going
0: to war. Well, thank goodness. Now, every country in Scandinavia, I believe... Has a royal family? All a constitutional monarch.
1: Yes, and also, they are family also. How so? They are actually related to each other. Oh,
0: are they the yes. Scandinavian royals? Yes. So Denmark, they are also Norway, family. Yeah,
1: they are. So now, they know each other and they visit are, each other. And
0: of course, well, hmm. what is the position of a king or a queen in the modern age in Scandinavia? It seems sort of antiquated.
1: Well, it is, but it's a way of kind of combining our history. And the king or the queen, they literally have no political power at all. They're only figureheads. So they are there to basically cut ribbons and inaugurate things and uh, wave to the people. But there is also a very different feeling towards uh, between the people and the royalty in the different countries. I would say that in Sweden, we have uh, the least... Closeness to our royal okay. family.
0: So they have a ceremonial role there, but yes, the support very, for that is getting yes. more skeptical. So he's now, the
1: one with the. Our Swedish king is the one with the least political okay. power of them all.
4: Now, Paul, I, I saw you reacting
1: yeah.
0: to there.
4: there. Actually, the the Norwegian king and I believe the Danish queen, they have uh, some powers left. Uh, the Norwegian king he has to sign all the laws that are mm. passed by, by the government, uh, but it has never happened that he didn't sign a law. So his role is really to
0: keep Norway together and it is. to be the figurehead, to For sort of the ceremonial. And when we think of the awkwardness of our president having to be the head of government and also the ceremonial, the mm-hmm. guy at all the, the fancy ceremonies, it would be convenient to have one person that does that and the other person that gets down and dirty in the politics. Yeah, it is. So the, the royals of Scandinavia can stay ideally above the politics. know, what about Denmark?
2: It's the same thing in, in Denmark. The figurehead, the queen in this case, does sign the laws. But we also say that the monarchy, the constitutional monarchy, is really a guarantee of democracy because it is the last way they can protest. That is by not signing the law and thereby indicating that there's something wrong. So, so they, they are actually, the voice of the people. They are the voice of the people supposedly. And if they do not like that law, they could choose not to sign it. But, of course, there would be consequences for them. But also, we say in Denmark, if the queen doesn't like the law, it's because there's something rotten in the state of Denmark.
0: I've heard that one. Now, mm-hmm. has that ever happened? the
2: It has never happened. So no. they
0: have that option. They
2: have that option. And but it's a
0: g-
4: reminder to the
0: government. It is a
2: reminder. And, of course... There would no longer be a monarchy in Denmark if she they didn't sign. There. Yeah. yeah,
4: and actually in in Norway, every Friday the government they go to the castle and they have a meeting with the king, and then they go through all the different uh, topics and the king comments so on, the king on all the laws. Work? Yeah, he does. Oh, that's
0: every great. Friday he
4: meets the government.
0: And I know in in each of the capitals, Oslo, Stockholm, and Copenhagen, the royal palace is uh, actually not so much in Norway. Mm-hmm. In Copenhagen. In Stockholm, you can go to the palace and tour it, and mm-hmm. it's quite an exciting tour.
1: And this is also something very something that the royalty in Scandinavia has in common. They're very down to earth, and you can bump into them on the streets. You
0: actually bump into your royal family. In, yes, in I've Stockholm. seen
1: yes all of them. I've seen the uh, crown princes take the second class uh, train, sitting at the seat in the second class train, just as a normal Swede. Uh, the king as well, you can see him drive to work every day mm. in his car. He doesn't have a driver. He drives himself. Yeah, so we they are very accessible, and we, we see them quite a lot. And I,
4: I also bumped into the Norwegian crown prince quite a few times uh, at concerts in Oslo. Yeah. You, know, you just see this guy standing in the back with a beer in his hand, and isn't that the crown prince? Oh, yes, it is. We had the crown very. princess of Norway, in this studio right here. Oh really? Metamarit. And she was
0: uh, writing a book that was how children can understand royalty. Oh. And she was traveling around the United States on a book tour. And yeah. she was so
4: charming and mm-hmm. so approachable. But there was a lot of controversy when when she was to marry the Crown Prince because she is a she is a girl of the people. Mm-hmm. She's not of nobility or of uh, Royalty. So she married into the royal. family. She married or into the royal family, and energy. she also uh, yes. had a child uh, single from mother. a previous single mother. Uh, yes, you're kidding. Marriage. A single so, uh, mother married the royal prince. Yes, yes. it and they was Norwegian, and they met at a music festival in the south of Norway. <laughs> and they talked that way. Tell me again how they would have said hello. How are you today? I play harder. Harder.
6: Harder. 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 Harder.
4: Harder. 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 Harder.
6: Harder. Harder. Harder.
0: Harder. 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 <laughs> this is travel with Rick Steves. We've been learning about Scandinavia and laughing about how cheery the Norwegians sound. Our guides have been Paul Johansen, Osa Danielson, and Jena Clausen. And I would say in any of these languages, "Tusen tak." Does that work? Yep, yeah.
1: it works. Tusen tak.
4: Tusen
0: tak yeah,
1: tak, a
4: thousand thanks.
1: Tusen <laughs> tak.
0: Some people say that the harder you have to work to enjoy a great view, the more you'll appreciate it, especially when you venture into territory where you're not at the top of the food chain. A couple summers ago, travel writer Christopher Solomon went on a rugged camping trip in Alaska's Antioch-Chak wilderness, where the bears far outnumber the humans. He wrote about what his rugged experience taught him for Outside Magazine, and Chris joins us right now for a quick look at the value of earning an amazing view the hard way. In your article, you wrote, the colors are always brighter if a place draws a little blood first. (laughs) It's a fascinating observation. (laughs) Tell us a little more about that.
7: There's a wonderful, incredibly legendary mountaineer named Fred Backey, and he he once said in a book about the North Cascades in in Washington State that uh, beauty is paid for partly in the currency of suffering. What I've always loved about that is I think there's something about working hard to get somewhere that sharpens the yeah. experience once you've made it. Oh, and you
0: appreciate it more. If you climb to a peak or if you're dropped there by a helicopter, it's beautiful either way, but yeah. one way you earn it and you probably savor it a little uh, differently.
7: And I suppose there's a, there's a tipping point in which this no longer applies so well or diminishing returns, but in some sense, you, you never forget the times uh, that you'd rather not remember at some point. <laughs> that's, well, that's true. It's, uh, that's,
0: in the retrospect, at a minimum, it's a beautiful experience. You also wrote, in in a different article, but I just love the way you write about wilderness experiences, Uh, you're on another Alaskan adventure, and you wrote, I'll admit, too, to enjoying the fear that can accompany such seclusion. You wrote, Friends and I spent days fishing at a fly-in forest service cabin on Martin Lake in Copper River Delta outside Cordoba, Alaska. And uh, you wrote, I still remember the afternoon we stood on the lake and hauled in a huge trout only to see a very large brown bear squinting at us from the shore as if gauging whether we were worth the effort. He left tracks larger than coffee cans and snuffled through our dreams all night. So you're laying there thinking that that bear knew where you were and he already sussed you out. There <laughs> are a few thrills that can quite match the electric prickle on the neck that comes with knowing one no longer stands atop the food chain. Tell me more about that feeling when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you, and you realize you're no longer top on the food chain.
7: I was thinking about this a lot in Antioch Jack where in the crater there were bear tracks the size of garden rakes, and there was no, no service. You couldn't dial 911. Oh, no. We had a sat phone for emergencies, but they would never get there. They'd, they'd get there in time to sweep up <laughs> your remains uh, if they could find any. I think what I like, uh, Rick, is that when you realize that you're a potential crudite, it hones your sense of where you are and you're very aware of your surroundings. And either you like that prickle on the back of the neck or you don't like it. And within reason, I, if I've taken the right precautions, I like it a great deal.
0: Up next, Calvin Alexander Ramsey explains how African-American travelers had to rely on a special guidebook when taking road trips around the USA not so many years ago. Learn about The Green Book next on Travel with Rick Steves. Before the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, and for some years after, the discrimination most African-American travelers faced meant a long road trip required making special provisions to avoid possible trouble on the road. One of those provisions was the Green Book. Calvin Alexander Ramsey's a playwright and an artist, and he's looked into this special travel directory that began circulating around African-American communities back in the 1930s. The Green Book listed gas stations, stores, restaurants, beauty parlors, hotels, and guest houses where their business was welcome. He's written a children's book called Ruth and the Green Book, which has received a number of prestigious awards. It depicts a family road trip to visit out-of-town relatives from the perspective of a black schoolgirl named Ruth. Calvin joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. Uh, Calvin, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Tell us about this era of uh, Jim Crow as it applies to black Americans who wanted to get out on the road and take their families on a vacation. Or if somebody who was uh, uh, working and had to to make a a road trip, what sort of um, challenges they would encounter up until the 1960s?
3: Well, it was very difficult. Up until World War II, African Americans weren't really migrating uh, a whole lot. But after World War II, they really got on the open road and they started buying automobiles. And that's when it really presented a a, a problem on the open road because there were so many places where they could not get service or have accommodations on the open road. So traveling by car was really a serious problem for African-Americans during this great migration period when as many as 6 to 8 million African-Americans migrated from the South to the North and also to the West.
0: What is the name The Green Book? Where does that come from?
3: Well, the name comes from this African-American mailman in Harlem named Victor Hugo Green. Uh, he was a uh, postal worker, and he would take his wife and family down to Richmond, Virginia every summer. And every summer he would have problems, uh, places to stay, using the restroom, overnight lodging. And so he went back to New York. Instead of getting angry, he decided to do something hmm. about it. And he belonged to a, uh, a union within the federal government called the National Association of Postal and Federal Employees. And through that uh, organization, he was able to reach out to other mailmen throughout the country, African-American mailmen, because during that period, African-American mailmen could only deliver mail in black neighborhoods. Hmm. And so they were able to ask people on their routes would they like to be in this uh, travel guide, and and it grew from there. This is up until
0: relatively recent times, until until the 1960s. Now, it was first published in 1936. It was called The Negro Motorist Green Book, an international travel guide, and then just uh, its nickname was The Green Book. Apparently, it's it sold quite a lot. I know you're making a film, and in the research for your film, have you run into a lot of people who've used it? What are some of the anecdotes of, of black Americans who traveled and, and how
3: this book helped them out? Well, I uh, interviewed a couple out of New Orleans who used the Green Book on their honeymoon. They vacationed down in Pensacola, Florida. I uh, introduced another gentleman who uh, used the book to drive his father down from uh, lower Louisiana down to uh, Miami, Florida, and, and a lot of folks that were traveling were not always entertainers or ballplayers. They were just average people. I interviewed a uh, gentleman that works for Esso, which is now ExxonMobil, and he's one of the first blacks that was hired in corporate America. And these guys would travel to conventions and uh, to association meetings, and they had expense accounts but nowhere to spend the money. Uh, <laughs> so they were really in a, a sort of a tough spot. And they relied on the Green Book more than anyone else because the white-collar African-American during this period was on the road more than anyone else. Right. There's an anecdote in your in this beautiful children's book, Ruth and the Green Book, and you
0: talk about the little girl whose mom would pack a big lunch, and the kids were didn't quite get it, but the big lunch was necessary because they may not even be able to find a place where they could
3: stop to get a lunch. Yeah, and in the children's book, Ruth didn't know why her mother was cooking so much that week uh, as they were traveling from... Chicago to Selma, Alabama, and, and in the children's book, the uh, year is 1952. And back then and up to the 64, when women would make these meals, and most of the time it was women cooking, sometime men, they would cook things that wouldn't perish. So they would make pound cake, boiled eggs, uh, raspberry tea, fried chicken. Uh, you could make anything that had you know mayonnaise in it or something that would become rancid on the open road because a lot of these cars back then, really did not have suitable air conditioning.
0: Calvin, when you when I think about this, I think about parallels with the Underground Railroad 100 years ago, and uh, that, of course, gets a lot of uh, attention in schools, but the modern-day story of African Americans not being able to be out on the road is kind of um, unnoticed, and do you have a, a sense that part of your work is shining a light on this?
3: Exactly, and there's a parallel with the Underground Railroad. In the book, uh, you see that Esso Oil sold the Green Book at a lot of their stations, and that's what at the time was owned by Standard Oil, which was owned by John D. Rockefeller Sr. And John D. Rockefeller Sr. got involved with this uh, project, uh, having the Green Book sold at his stations throughout the country, mainly because of his wife. His wife's name was Laura Spellman. Uh, her family was out of Ohio. And they were abolitionists. And their home was part of the Underground Railroad. Her father was a minister, a Congregationalist minister. And he was what you call a conductor on the Underground Railroad, which means that, you know, he was one of the people that would allow his home to be used uh, for enslaved people who were leaving the South, making their way to Canada. So uh, Laura grew up in this environment. And Laura's last name is Spellman. There's a college in Atlanta, Georgia, called Spellman College, which is an African-American college for women. And Rockefeller was one of the big supporters of the school from day one. The school's original name was the Women's Seminary College. Hmm. And uh, he got involved in it, and he said, if you would change the name of this school to honor my wife and her family, I would make sure proceeds from my foundation would come to this school every year. And the name of the school was changed. And if you went on campus today, you would see a portrait of uh, a Minister Spellman in administration hall and his wife. And the church on campus is called Sister Chapel, and it's named after Laura and Lucy, the uh, minister's two daughters.
0: So that's very interesting that Rockefeller recognized the, the injustice here, and he happened to have a built-in distribution network with all the Esso gas stations for road trippers. So mm-hmm. was that probably the primary way? I understand that you know when the Green Book was at its height, they were printing 150,000 copies every year. Was the Esso gas station where most people bought it?
3: They could get it there, but also they could get it from Pullman Porters, NWCP church organizations, mailmen would sell it, uh, civic organizations. And once you got a copy, you kept it forever. Man, uh, I would love no... to get a
0: copy of that. Is it, is it like a
3: collector's item now? <laughs> exactly. You know, the book, when it first started out, sold for 25 cents. There was a library who just purchased one. They had to pay $5,000 for it. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, my goodness. It's a rare it's book. It's six by nine. It will fit into the glove compartment of the car. And once you got a copy, you kept it forever.
0: You can go online and actually read every page. I browsed through it, and it's quite interesting. If people just Google uh, the Green Book, they can find that.
3: Yeah, and, and it wasn't just in the southern states. You know, the Jim Crow laws were pretty much all over. So if you was traveling to Northern California, you would still be limited where you could stay. That's right. Uh, New England, the same, the same would hold true.
0: Now, you did have tourist homes that are listed in the books. These are like bed and breakfasts, right?
3: Well, actually, they were just regular houses. They just called them tourists homes, just wow. regular homes, you know, and there was no phone numbers. You would just drive up, knock on the door and say, I see that you're listed in the green book. <laughs> and, and so it wasn't no advanced planning or calling in ahead and saying we're on our way. Uh, you would just show up. A lot of times the uh, people wouldn't even charge. They just had an empathy for the the plight of African
0: Americans on the road and and opened up their homes.
3: And it was African Americans themselves, and they knew that they could be in the same situation. So they were kind of giving back Mm -hmm. and hoping that they could receive the same kind of uh, service if they were on the road. We're learning about Travel with the Green Book circa 1952 right
0: now on Travel with Rick Steves. Calvin Alexander Ramsey has written Ruth and the Green Book to illustrate what a family road trip would have been like for African Americans driving from Chicago to visit relatives in Alabama in that era. That's when Jim Crow laws made it difficult for black motorists to find accommodations on the road without the special directory that Victor H. Green published with a state-by-state list of welcoming businesses. There's more about the story online at ruthandthegreenbook.com. We've also got a link to a PDF of an actual Green Book from 1949. Notice that the cover has my favorite Mark Twain quote on it. Travel is fatal to prejudice. You'll find that link in this week's radio program details at ricksteves.com. Calvin, tell us about the sunset laws. These are, are something that uh, a lot of Americans don't even recall, and this would have been a, a devastating thing for African-American travelers in the old days.
3: Yes, exactly. If you're going through certain counties, there were you know signs posted saying you should not be caught there after sunset. And these towns and counties were throughout the United States, and if you got caught there overnight, you could really be in trouble not only with the law, but maybe with the local citizens as well. That was something that people in cars were very conscious of, which is why a lot of African Americans, even with cars, chose to travel by bus and train. You could accidentally be out all of a sudden at sunset and you could be in physical trouble. Yeah, yeah, uh and also with the authorities you could get arrested or mm-hmm. or have physical harm done to you and your family. And so if you were traveling with your family, you was always putting your family first. Right. And and those things were foremost in the minds of the uh family that were traveling. Kelvin, are there any physical memorials or plaques or
0: anything to acknowledge this sort of modern day uh, underground railroad, you know, uh, as you travel around today? Is, is there any recognition of these Tourist homes and and these organizations that opened uh, up for black American travelers
3: not really uh there are some establishments that are still standing, I think in Atlanta, Georgia the butler street y m c a is still in operation. It's not as popular as it was you know in the earlier days, but it's still operating as a place where men who are traveling businessmen could stay overnight or people mm. working in a town could get extended stay as well but uh A lot of these buildings have been converted to apartments or stores or or torn down. But people who are a certain age have memories of the Green Book and how it all started and how it was so helpful to them on an open road.
0: Now, of course, we've come a long way, but uh, I would imagine there still are some challenges for African-American travelers. When you're out and about and when other African-Americans are traveling around our country, are there regions where they still face problems? and, And how has the legacy of this Jim Crow era survived when it comes to the great american road trip
3: well you know when i'm traveling i'm 62 and if i'm driving and i see an exit you know and if it's not a a national chain i'm still reluctant to pull off if it's late at night or early in the morning Mm -hmm. uh so those things are still with you Mm -hmm. it's almost like when you're working out you have a a muscle memory (laughs) uh you have a memory on this as well even though i was young when uh the civil rights bill was passed i was a early a young teenager uh, but the stories you hear and things you experience as a young person, they never don't really ever all the way mm-hmm. go away. So so I'm very conscious of uh, that when I'm traveling, and I think a lot of other people are as well. Calvin, when did the Green Book actually go out of print? Sixty-four, nineteen sixty-four. 1964. Mr. Green's dream was to go out of business. He did not want to print the book forever. He mm-hmm. was looking for the day when the still-right bill would pass. So that the uh, African Americans would be treated like other Americans uh, in wow. this society. So he was looking forward to going out of business, and I think he was very happy when that day came. A- and uh, a lot of folks asked, "What did he do after that?" said, so well, he remember he was a full time mailman. He had a he had a day job. Uh, <laughs> so, but he really wanted to uh, you know stop publishing this publication because it was a in a way a very good thing. Was also it was helpful, but it was also it was uh, a little shameful too to have to have a separate guide mm-hmm. for uh, citizens in, in this great country.
0: Well, that was just one of, of many reasons to celebrate. In 1964, mm-hmm. when the Civil Rights Act passed and Victor H. Green no longer had to publish the Negro Motorist Green Book, an international travel guide. Uh, Calvin, I've, I've got the, the children's book in my hand here, and I understand you've mm-hmm. also working on a play and a movie.
3: Tell us uh, what else you're doing with this green book. I had a play. uh, The play had a reading in Washington, D.C. at the uh, historic Lincoln Theater uh, on U Street. In the play, Julian Bond, the civil rights leader from uh, the 60s, played the role of Mr. Green. And since then, we had a world premiere of the play in Atlanta, Georgia, at Theatrical Outfit, and the play was extended for two extra weeks. And now I'm working to take the play to New York City to uh, Lincoln Center. And the movie? Well, the movie is a documentary. Well, I'm actually interviewing actual people that use the Green Book and have stories about the Green Book and how the Green Book was a major asset to them and their family traveling. That'll be a little
0: bit of living history then. That'll be good to collect that and save it. Exactly. Why did you write the children's book and what do you hope children will take away from this?
3: Well, you know, uh, I'm old enough where my family could have used the Green Book. Uh, I was born in Baltimore, but I grew up in North Carolina, and we used to make those trips back and forth. And it wasn't long trips, but they were trips that would uh, take a little time. And I remember my mother's cooking and, and they're packing stuff. And sometimes uh, we even uh, traveled with gasoline in the trunk of the car and big metal containers because, you know, the parents really didn't want to have any interaction that might, you know, spill over into an incident. I had never heard of the Green Book up until 11 years ago. I was at a school one day, and I was talking about the Green Book, and I told a young lady that I told the classroom with people that I'm old enough to remember my family could have used the Green Book. Mm-hmm. And she asked me had I ever seen a dinosaur. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, it wasn't quite that long ago. But I was at a funeral about 11 years ago, and a friend of mine, a son was killed in a car accident and I went to the funeral, and a grandfather came down from New York City. He was a retired mailman, and after the service, uh, we were all in the backyard talking about different things, and he looked right at me, and he said, I was looking for a green book. It was his first time in the Deep South, and he thought he still needed one. And I said, what's the green book? And he started explaining it to me at the time, and uh, I had never heard of it, and I was uh, on the advisory board of Emory University at the time, Special Collections manuscripts and rare books and I went over there and they did not have a copy so I went to Atlanta University and they had two copies of the Green Book and they made me copies of copies and from there I started researching and I wrote a play about the Green Book called the Green Book then I wrote a children's book and in the children's book on the dedication page I dedicated the book to uh, the young man who was killed in a car accident uh, little Tony because I probably would not I probably heard of the Green Book eventually but not in such a dramatic manner. Calvin, Alexander Ramsey, best wishes, and uh, let's be thankful
0: we don't need a green book today. Exactly. Thank you.
7: Black like and old-
0: a lot to explore around the USA. Some of our listeners have sent us a haiku poem they've written about their travels, whether close to home, around the country, or around the world. Share your travel haiku with us in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are some examples we thought you'd enjoy.
6: Phyllis Baker from Seattle describes what she saw on a road trip through the mountains of Oregon. Graffiti on freights, high up in the Siskiyous, traveling art show, Jeff Sibley from Central City, Louisiana, stretches the haiku form a bit to tell us about a bike trip he made across the state, along its original state highway, LA-1. Louisiana's longest street, great people along the way to meet, 500 miles pedaled to complete. Gail Weinstein writes us from Port Orange, Florida, to tell us about a famous nearby beach town. Choose sand or asphalt, cars along shore or racetrack. Daytona Beach. Wow. And Karen Albright of Fort Wayne, Indiana, describes the scene in the car on a family road trip up north. Up to Michigan. Ah, sullen teenage daughter. Karma strikes again.
7: Travel with Rick Steves is a production of Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Woolner. Thanks to our colleagues at Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta for their help this week. We'd love to get an original haiku poem you've written about the impressions you get from your travels. There's a link for sending us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
0: Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Nordic adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.